Yo, yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome back and welcome all to the Houseless Podcast. My name is Peter Agosta. I'm your host. And check it out. We got a great episode for you today. J Zone is in the place to be. Yes, yes. And that's whose music you heard in the intro. If y'all aren't hip, um, check it out. So he just put out a new record. It's called Greasy Listening. But it's not just J Zone, it's his dude. Pablo Martin and him together as a group called the Do Rights. So if you haven't been hip to this uh, new thing he's been doing, this is their second album, actually. So Greasy Listening just came out. And the debut is called J-Zone and Pablo Martin are the Do Rights. Also worth grabbing. And you can go right now to um, thedorights.bandcamp.com to, one, buy the digital version of it, but you can get the wax as well it's also available on itunes um and spotify and soundcloud and all that shit so that's part of the reason why we got up together today but you know i've known jayzone for a long time now and um we basically you know just i wanted to kind of get a sense of like where he was coming from leading into this because it's a departure from his rap shit you know what i'm saying and he quit rapping a while ago too as far as performing live on stage so i always kind of wanted to get a sense of why exactly he did that so we kind of cover all this and you'll see in the conversation so i don't want to i don't want to preface it too much but I do want to thank you guys for tuning in. As always, I love doing this, and I love that you guys have been vibing with it. So if you subscribe, uh, thank you so much. If it's your first time listening, you know, whether it's on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or if you listen on the Stitcher app or on SoundCloud, however you do it, hey, man, I appreciate it. You can hit that subscribe button right now. If you want to, copy and paste the link, send it to your buddy, you know, put it on your Facebook page, all that shit. Like, just uh, spread the word. Um, it's a DIY type of thing, and I like uh, kind of getting the word out there, word of mouth style. You know what I'm saying? So, with that being said, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this. It was a great conversation, and um, I'm gonna be leaving the country and going to Hungary uh, to visit my family. So, I'm planning on posting this the same week that i dropped my conversation with b plus so um hopefully you guys dig that too in a week and i might be gone for a whole or unable to post another one for a whole week plus so i wanted to give you guys enough stuff to listen to um but we'll see i got a couple conversations lined up before i leave so you never know so it all depends on what me and cj end up doing as far as finding the time to knock these joints out. So anyway, uh, let's just jump right into this joint. Uh, I played a joint off the new album, Greasy Listening, uh, The Do Rights, and I end this episode with another song off of their just-released sophomore album. So pick it up where you can. Do yourself a favor. It's great. I love it. It's some funk shit, but there's like a whole mix of elements. So, uh, and it's got that classic J-Zone humor intermingled within it too. So fans should, you know, scope it out if this is your first time ever, you know, learning about that. So yeah, hopefully we just put you on to something. And without further ado, let's check out my conversation with the one and only J-Zone here on The House List. 
So I was, I've been looking at this book, um, which, you know, this came, obviously came out some years ago, a few yeah, years ago. Six, six years ago. 2012, right? 11. Oh, shit. Oh, so the yeah, self-published uh, memoirs, uh, Root for the Villain, Jay Zones, um, great book, humor, humor-based. Um, I mean, I can tell how dated it is because you even mentioned Triple Crown in the, uh, in the insignia. Where was Triple Crown? It was in Williamsburg on Bedford Avenue of all places. Oh, it was, it was man, that's for, right. It was a joint for a little while. Yeah, I used to play there. Yeah. Yeah, it was that, good. It was like predated any anything that was really. We going did the on. DJ Premier party, right? Me and DJ Premier. Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. on DJ Premier. Yeah, I remember. The, damn, the, the, the little that little like I feel like that might not even happen nowadays. Like you know, it was just like a weird period of time when you know it was a small place, small bar. Yeah, small. You see it packed in there though, and you just had yeah. a mixture of a crowd. It was all different kinds of people and stuff. It was just so. Yeah. That kind of early feels like that was that was that was I know was eleven years ago. That was oh six. Yeah, that was yeah that was a while ago. Yeah, wow. yeah, it was that was a fun place. Uh, did Lorf and Ness there and Awesome Two, but what I mean what I guess what the point I was trying to make here, at least with this book, mm-hmm. was that like how do you knowing that like you know one it takes a lot to be able to do this. I, I wish I had the patience and the time to be able to write a book of any amount Mm -hmm. um and i want to you know um i kind of know the story of how this came together but and i want to talk a little bit about it even Mm -hmm. though it's came out a while ago but how do you now it's 2017 how do you how's your life changed since this because obviously you know you're a young man really when you wrote this i mean you're young it's not like you know you're in the twilight of your career or anything you're like kind of in a new you're starting like a kind of a new chapter altogether, but I'm yeah. curious because like you know you put a lot of time to it. It's like a chapter. It's like a you know period of time of your life when you were doing you like quit rap and shit. Yeah. So how has it changed since? How, oh. how has it changed since then? Life is totally different from at that point because just just the state of affairs where we are in terms of technology and social media and how we interact like. The first half of that book, I mean, I haven't looked at that book since I proofread it. Right. And I was like, that was like October the 3rd, I remember it was when it came. And the night before, I was like up all night. So I haven't, it, it'll be about, I never read it once it came out. Wow. I just, I don't okay. listen to my music once it comes out. I don't right. read, once something's out, I feel like it's no longer mine. It's just, it's the public's and, and sure. they, they can, they can kind of interpret it how they want, but the second half of that book is like all opinion pieces. Right. And at that point, like the internet wasn't new, but opinions were like, you got a lot of attention off your opinions. Like, right. you know, like opinions, everybody had them, but it, it was kind of like, I wrote all these things that are just my own idiosyncratic opinion. And like now looking back, I haven't read it, but I, I just remember vaguely some of those chapters later <laughs> in the book. And I'm like, why would anybody care? Like, like what I think about fashion or what I think about texting or, or what I think about gentrification. or Those are just my experiences and my gripes. So, like, for somebody picking up that book now, they'd be like, I'll, they probably won't get, like, why the second half of the book, like, why was this published? But at the time, yeah. I used to blog that stuff, whether it was for Dante Ross or for Ego Trip. And 
Those college, you know, I used to get a lot of engagement, like in the what college. What was the Dante Ross? Was that through? I, I had a blog through through DanteRoss.com. Dante Ross had his oh, own wow, website. Oh wow, I forgot all about that. Yeah. yeah, and and people used to like look forward to these little shit talking things that I used to do, like once every two weeks or something. I would, you know, what's up with men dressing like women? Is that like we're just in such a different world now right. that. I'm not going to say, da- well, it's kind of dated. Like, the, the the first half of the book is timeless because that's just my experience in music. Right. You know, but the second half of the book was just my opinions. And, you know, now we're in the era where everybody has an opinion because of social media. So everybody's going to say, well, who the hell is he? Right, yeah, right. So, yeah, so, it almost makes that kind of quaint in a way that, like, you have a book of this stuff of that time. But, I mean, there's been generations of of authors and you know opinion makers that were published you know yeah. it's only in the last few years that every single person can have their opinion yeah, so out constantly it's not uh, you know it's not a thing anymore you know to for a like you can just go on twitter and read everybody's opinion right. or facebook or instagram or whatever you know so you know people will probably read and then the world has changed i've changed so much since that book came out um so the opinion part of it, I don't know if it's going to hold up as well as the musical part, you know, chronicling my career. But to answer your, you know, initial question, I mean, like when I wrote that book, I was pretty much at rock bottom. Yeah. So you what know? was the deal with with I mean, not what's the deal, but really like as far as you took a major step away from uh, performing one, I think all out fall you quit performing yeah. for a while yeah and kind of have not really returned to rapping off stage right? yeah and then even stop i mean there's a pretty big bridge a, a big gap between you know regular traditional hip-hop albums where you're rapping on them too mm-hmm. so and that's when the book sort of came out during that time right mm-hmm. so what was the whole first you know step um or uh you know impetus as far as like trying to step away from that whole world of rapping on well, stage and like in recording it, it happened it happened in in phases okay. because nothing i mean we like to think that things happen just overnight right. but, but but i mean if you're really a musician like you just have your trials and tribulations and you kind of fight through them but then if you're dying like a slow death or if it's like a slow fight and you're slipping rather than like an overnight there and gone, like a one hit wonder is there and gone. But like right. if you're kind of like an independent artist and, you know, you could do a tour in Europe and get a lot of love and make some money, sell some merch and pack the place and come home and play for five people in New York. That's normal. Right. So like when you have a, a string of bad shows and you know, shows that aren't well attended or a record doesn't sell. You know, like, that's normal for us. So there's never a reason to panic. Like, I've always dealt with the up and down. But it was just, I would say from 2005 to 2009, it was just like a decline. Every once in a while, I'd get a spike. Like, the, like CeeLo and Danger Mouse showing up to my retirement show at, at CBGB's. Right. Like, that was an amazing night. But then I remember, you know, the next day, like, you know, I had to give a lot of the money back to the promoter because it was an error in the accounting. Oh, my God. So, which was fine. I didn't care because that wasn't about money. But, you know, it was kind of like, you know, like there was always some kind of folly around the corner when you're dealing with, like, Chitlin Circuit touring and you're a smaller artist. Sure. But, you know, like, 
I was always able to deal with it as long as I loved the music. As long as I enjoyed being on stage or I enjoyed making records, I just kind of accepted, you know, the records don't sell like they used to. And, you know, my, my profile was dw- was dwindling. And um, in re- like in I mean, in regards to like whatever was selling it at the time. Right. I mean, it's yeah, because like, like you're obviously like some of your material is a little it's part of like the concept of some of the records is a bit like self-effacing, mm-hmm. you know, you're kind of self, you have a self-deprecating style of humor, at least with some of the, you know, on the records and stuff like that. Yeah. So, but I mean, at the same time, as you, like, like you said, as you got ventured closer to the mid aughts or whatever, that was really like when physical, but people stopped buying CDs and like the earliest incarnation of real, like, you know, digital distribution was starting mm-hmm. and there was like this kind of teeter-tottering mm-hmm. shit. Um, because the first record was a big success, obviously. Yeah, because like, well, when, when, you know, it's, it's like Big Fish, Small Pond or Guppy in the Ocean. Right. Like, what do you want to be? And in the beginning, like when you're pressing everything up yourself and you sell 2,000 copies, you know, you're looking at $8 a unit or $10, you know, the money, you know, you, you can do all right. You know, even you don't have to sell a whole lot of units, you know, but but then when I think the problem that happened with the whole indie rap thing, quote unquote, meaning the hip hop thing that kind of came about was born out of the Stretch and Bobbito thing and went into the early mid aughts like that whole thing. A lot of a lot of us just felt like, well, you know, our music is good enough to be on MTV. Our music is good enough to be carried in Tower Records, but a lot of the labels didn't have the the, fi- the endless supply of money to put the music there. Right. So because it's an expense that they have to exp- incur. Right? Yeah. So like, you know, like Raucous was a prime example of that. You know, because they had like bigger name artists willing to work with them, and a lot of their records got big. But then there was no sample clearance department, and they ran into some trouble with that. Or, right. you know, like. Something like, okay, you know, oh, your records, you know, have all this, you know, have some potential, you know, so my record is now next to Kanye and Jay-Z and Tower Records, but they have video, I don't. And this is before YouTube. So to cost a vi- to shoot a video would cost you 10 grand. So on an independent budget, you didn't have the money to shoot a video. And then you get it on MTV2 or something, and they play it once at like 2 in the morning. Right, right, right. And then you never see it again. So... The playing field wasn't as level as it is now where anybody could go to your YouTube clip and something could go viral on a free chance. Whereas back then, you still had to have that machinery. So, you know, with me, things started, the wheels started to kind of fall off when I I wanted to get better distribution and get my albums into the chain stores. You know, I would get on like the, you know, in order to get into Best Buy, you had to be part of a major U.S. tour. So Fat Beats put me on the Warp Tour just to put on the bullet sheet so they could get into Best Buy. Right. So we did five dates, but we lost all this money because we didn't have, a, you know, they don't pay. Yeah, Warp sold, Tour, yeah. Warp Tour, you know, the, five people would see each show. You couldn't really sell no merch. You know, we're, we're trying to spend money to entertain ourselves. So we're right. getting drunk in the hotel every night because there's nothing else to do. We're driving across Pennsylvania. We only did five dates and I was totally fried. Right. So I can't imagine people driving around the country. And some people definitely people, do Some that. people do the whole country. And, and I did I'm five dates. I'm talking about dates. smaller acts, you know, yes. chasing that shit. Chasing yeah. it. And I did five. We did D.C., uh, Pittsburgh, Philly, New Jersey, and New York. And afterwards, like, we got a little budget from Fat Beats to get a rental car, some gas, some hotels. Because this was a, a, an all 
uh, and you know to to get the music into the chain store. That's what we right. had to do. So he said, "Okay, you only got to do five dates, but you do, you'll do the dates, and technically you will have done the Warp tour. We could put that on there." Right. So you know, but then when we came home, like we were, we had to come out of our own pocket. Mm. You know, I, I remember trying to get onto Randall's Island for the New York show, and I kept missing the exit, and I picked up like twenty five dollars in tolls oh <laughs> trying to get there. Classic you know, New York. And, yeah, quite, you know, just. But we did it to kind of, you know, get to this next level that didn't really exist. And it's like, we, you know, we got our CDs in Tower, and then in 2006, all the chains folded, all right. the CDs came back. And then in 2010, I have to go down there and sign off on thousands of CDs that have to be destroyed right. because they couldn't sell. So you've gone through the, the, the destroying process of those? Yeah. I, yeah. I, uh, well, that, while I was working on the book, that happened. Right. I, um, um, was it the spot in Long, was it in Long Island or the, no, uh, well I was working at Wine Dance High School well no there was a, as far as destroying oh no CDs. no that was in Brooklyn okay, that was gotcha. at uh, Fat Beats when their warehouse was at Dumbo oh that's right yeah because I remember and, yeah because I dealt with something similar to that when studio distribution folded and um, I was left with a gang of uh, you know CDs and they mm-hmm. were like we need to destroy these you know you yeah. can either have them or we can destroy them, and uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly how that played out. But it was common yeah, because this absolutely. was this was around 2010, so we're making the switch over from CDs into just right. digital and, and SoundCloud, and you know, like all that stuff was on the horizon, and there was just no space for this stuff. So I went right. to Fat Beats, I drove there, and signed off on the destruction of like my back catalog because it was like I was so bitter about hip-hop and about my career at that point that I was just working a regular job and working on the book I didn't want to be reminded of it so now that I'm back in music and people are asking me for stuff and I have a band camp where I could kind of catalog that stuff and still sell it you know you go on discogs and some of that stuff is 15 20 30 bucks but but at the time I just I didn't want to be reminded of it. Like, I just right. felt like nobody cared. I didn't want to be reminded. I actually hated the whole Jay's own thing. Like, at that time, I was sure. just bitter. And I was like, I didn't want to be reminded. So I wanted to, I didn't even, I made no bones about destroying it just because, I didn't even think about it. Because people would always ask me, like, well, that's destroying your work. And did that hurt? I mean, it didn't even hurt. It was just right, kind of right. like. Well, it's almost a burden at a certain It, it was a burden. I was like, either it's going to be in my basement reminding me of something I don't want to think about, or I can destroy it and I don't have to think about it anymore. Right. So I went and did it, and it, you know, it didn't feel good, but at the same time, it was just like closing a chapter for me. That's, right, and that's it's just a product to, like, you know, it's a physical product. It doesn't take away from the fact that you created that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know. yeah the music still existed, but what did irk me a bit is you mentioned digital distribution earlier. The next day, I got a, a letter in the mail, a certified mail, from my distributor at the time that they were dropping all my music. Now, that kind of bothered me because right. it's not taking up any space. right. Like digital music, because there was no TuneCore or anything then. So back then, to get digital distribution, you had to sign up with a company. Yeah, it was a much smaller industry. A small industry, and you had to sign with, it was like signing with a label. You, I signed with a company to distribute my music digitally, and I had a catalog. I had what? 10, 11 albums, and they weren't selling the way that they had hoped. So they said, we don't want to carry your stuff anymore. And, I, and they sent me a letter. They didn't call me. I got a letter in the mail. Right. So I'm like, yo, I just destroyed all the physical. And now, 
you know, the this, it's not available digitally. Like it was right. gone, and you know, it was off the internet. Like my stuff was nowhere to be found, and you know, that was kind of like, well, damn. You know, it, you kind of feel like, okay, well, it's for nothing. You know, but then eventually, self-titled, he has one of those hookups where he has a multiple labels signed to a deal and he right. said well give me your catalog i'll put it up sure so you know within two months it was all back up like i just gave it to self and said okay well you handle that and he you know he helped me out with it. and now of course you can go to distro kit or TuneCore or cd baby or any of those things right and you can there's lots of outlets there's now. plenty of outlets like but but again this was a transition time 2009 10 it was like getting digital distribution was like getting a record deal yeah like so a lot of stuff just wasn't available digitally you know yeah. so that like when i was writing the book i was going through all that and i was in a process of dealing with it so i wouldn't be bitter and the book enabled me to not be bitter about it anymore because when you write your feelings down and you put them out there you can't control how people are going to perceive what you're saying sure but you, it's like catharsis, like, this is what happened, boom. And once I wrote the book, you know, like, I did, you know, I got it out of my system and I was able to move forward. You know, I moved forward, obviously, my experiences that I had gone through were still, deter you know, having an influence on my decisions. Like, I never performed as a rapper again, like, that was, I was done with that. But I made two more hip-hop albums and then I, I was into drumming, so I went into more being a musician, which is what I initially started as before I found hip hop. So to me, right, it's, right. The, the public is probably like, what the hell is this? But for me, it's normal because I started as a musician. So to me, it's just going back to how I started. So, so how did you start playing then? Well, do you start with drums as a kid or something? Or? I started with bass. I played everything. Okay. I was in a school band and a trumpet and violin, trombone. Nice. Um, I played the trombone. I played as well. trombone, and I played the upright bass. That was the oh, bass shit. was my nice. main instrument. So I played upright in the orchestra, and I played electric in the jazz band, and I played on my own at home. And I wanted to be a funk bass player. So what I used to do was, when I was in elementary school, I was buying records older than me, like old right. funk records, and I would buy them because I knew that the bass lines were, you know, Slave was like one of my favorite groups because the Hell bass yeah. lines, the bass lines were just so. Mark Adams was a monster. Cool in the Gang, Cameo, BT Express, Brass Construction, Ohio Player, all those kind of groups. So I used to buy those as a kid because my parents had the records. And I'm like, yo, the, listen to the bass. So I would go to old record stores when I was in grade school and take my allowance and buy one record every weekend. Nice. And people would be like, yo, why don't you buy the new Run DMC? And I didn't even know what that was. Like all my friends were into hip hop, but I was like, well, there's this Bohannon record and his bass lines are always good. So I would go buy all these records. Oh, so even while hip hop was kind of getting its real like yeah. roots place, like you were I still in the funk. I wasn't into no. hip hop. Yeah, I nice. didn't get into hip hop till '88, '89. Okay, cool. But what happened was, I was buying all these funk records and practicing my bass. I would just put them on. I go to my grandparents' house, put the record on, and I would play to the record for hours. Dope. And that's how I learned how to play by ear, following the records. And what happened was, eventually, my friend who lived upstairs, Rob, he used to always say, like, yo, why do you listen to music that our parents listen to? You need to listen <laughs> to some rap. And I knew Run DMC. I, I always kind of liked the Fat Boys because I thought they were funny. Right. But I, I, I didn't like rap beyond that. Like, to me, because rap at that point was like drum machines, so it didn't have that sound that I wanted. Hmm. But then the hip-hop records started having samples in them. 
and I didn't know that sample. I didn't know what it was or nothing. But he told me to. He said, "Just watch MTV Raps. Just watch it." This was probably like in '88, 80, maybe early '89. Mm-hmm. And I turned it on, and I'm like, "That sounds like Cool in the Gang." And it was EPMD. You got to chill. And I'm like, "Yo, they're dancing inside of a freezer." And like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, "Yo, this is pretty cool." But isn't that Cool in the Gang? And then. You know, I started noticing the funk records I used to play bass to were in the rap records. Mm-hmm. And then when I, you know, it was just the sampling. That's what hooked me. I didn't really. But then when I kept watching the, the hip hop stuff, I, they showed LL Cool J on Bad. And I'm like, yo, he huh. sounds like the biggest, toughest person on the planet Earth. Like, oh, no, yeah, well, that can rap. Too. Just like I can. I take a muscle belt. And I was like, Wow. And, you know, when you're, like, 12 years old, you're kind of looking for a hero. And my right. heroes were, like, George Clinton and Robert Kubel and, you know, all those guys. <laughs> but, but you know, but when, when you're 12, 13, like, you're going to school and your peers are listening to this stuff, you start, after that, the lyrics started to hook me. Right. So it started with the samples, then the lyrics, and then I figured out what sampling was and I figured out how they were making the beats and then the lyrics started to appeal to me because you're about to go through puberty so now these records are talking about sex and stuff and right, right, right. so now it's exciting so it, it, it by the time 89 came around I had become a hip-hop fan and I was still playing bass but I was like well I want if I want to form the next cool in the gang where am I going to find seven other guys to play funk yeah, it was like one generation before. <laughs> yeah, you know. there, there was nobody trying to do that. Like, right. there were bands locally, but they were all playing rock. Right. Because this was in Westchester. And then the hip, Gosh, the, the young yeah. black kids were in the hip hop, and the white kids were in the rock. And I'm like, well, what, who's playing funk? I'm like, nobody's playing. I'm like, so for me to be funky, I might as well take these records. I, since I already have the records, let me figure out how to do that. Interesting. Okay. So. I was still playing bass in school and I was still doing it, but I, I started practicing less and less. And then I started spending more and more time listening to rap. And, mm-hmm. buy, and I was, you know, I would still buy old funk records, but now I'm like, well, let me buy them for samples instead of buying them to practice. What, where'd you go to buy records at up there? Oh, man. Well, I used to be in the city a lot because my grandparents were in Queens. So every weekend when I come to Queens, I used to go to Green Line Records, which was in Jamaica mm-hmm. Avenue. Okay. Mm-hmm. Large Pro- Paul C. used to go there because it was around the corner from Studio 1212. Nice. It was on Guy Brewer Boulevard in Archer. So I used to go to Green Line from like, from like 87 to 89. I was in Green Line every weekend. Wow. Buying funk. And then... Did you ever see Large Professor then? I didn't, but I was too young to know. I wouldn't, and that was before Main Source, right? So I would have never known who those people were. But you know, like I used to do that, and then um, in the city there was a place called Dayton's. I think Mm. they were on Fourteenth or Twenty Third, and then J and R Music used to have a back room where they carry records. Right. Um, Colony was very expensive, but every once in a while I would get something from Colony, and then they had a. you know, like in Westchester, there was a place in Nurshell called um, Records Unlimited that closed in 1990 for tax problems. Okay. But they carried hip-hop, reggae, and old records. So I would go in there and buy... i never forget, I went, th- I went there the first time I ever bought a rap record with my own money. Mm-hmm. I went there, got a haircut around the corner at Al's. Saw Grand Pooba in Al's getting a haircut. Uh, nice. <laughs> I went, I, then I went, you know, into Records <laughs> Unlimited... And bought Rolling with Kid and Play, 12 inch, straight out the jungle, 
Jungle Brothers 12 inch. And then I bought Cameo Cardiac Arrest. Wow. So like I was, you see, like so I would still buy my funk stuff. Well, that that about sums uh, J Zone up. Right? Yeah, like so those records right there, that that was like I was in sixth grade, so I was buying funk nice. records, but I was also reading Word Up magazine. Right. But you're buying twelve inches too. So twelve inches and and then cassettes. The the first full album I bought was Stetsasonic in full gear. I Dope. bought it. I bought it that summer in '89. Incredible talk, album. Yeah, talking all that jazz was the joint. Oh, so yeah. I went to the Neurochelle Mall and bought that record for six ninety nine, and then I actually had Paul sign it when I met him, and that's the first wow. rap album I ever bought with my wow. own money. So nice, you know. So we're talking. I, I had I had like this two different musical pedigrees going on, yeah. but then I eventually got into hip hop because it just seemed I could do it by myself. I could go in my bedroom and make a beat and write a rhyme, and it was easier than trying to find a band. So around 92, I got an SP-1200. I saved up working a summer job and, and got an SP-1200. So and by this time, you're like, you like know about gear. Yeah. Well, what happened was the summer of 92, I interned at PowerPlay. Okay. So how does that happen? Because back in the days, I used to read liner notes. Right. Whenever I bought an album, I would sure. sit there and read the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, what you know, that summer... I was like playing football and stuff. I was like a jock, but I was I was really feeling this hip hop thing. I already bought some turntables, and I was telling my dad, I was like, "Yo, dad, you know, I want I want to see how these records are made." He was like, "Well, maybe you can get into a recording studio, you know, maybe you can be in the studio and see how it's done." And I was like, "Yeah, you're right." And I was like, "Well, maybe they always list where they record the albums on the, on the back of the CD, so maybe." If I look at the CD, I could find something. So I was looking at uh, different CDs, and a lot of them said Power Play. I think I had, you know what it was? Remember, I just bought Double X Posse uh, Headcracker 12-inch, mm -hmm. and it was recorded Power Play. And I was like, when I was at my grandparents' house, I was looking through the yellow pages at recording studios. I'm like, Power Play, that... I've seen that before. Nice. And then yeah. Diamond Shell had a song called Bugged Out Day at Power Play. So I was like, Power Play. I was like, maybe I could do that. So I just called him and I was like, hi, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fit. I told my name. I said, I'm in high school. I don't know anything, but I, I want to learn about this hip hop stuff. You know, can I come in and, and see what's going on? I don't know. He was like, well, do you want to intern? I was like, well, yeah. He was like, well, we can't pay you, but you can watch and you can run errands for us and then you can watch and I was like okay so my dad drove me over to Long Island City and the summer of 92 every Sunday he would drop me off in Queens and I would be there from 12 to 5 every, nice. every Sunday so I saw Vagina Diner being recorded so Akinelli's infamous debut Akinelli uh, was there uh, when they were mixing I Love Her I was, I was sitting right there wow that's amazing <laughs> It's the uh, most controversial song. Which and at the time, I, I, was, like, the time, I was like, whoa. But yeah. I was listening to a lot of rap-a-lot shit, so to me, right. I wasn't thinking nothing of it. But, you know, Rob Swift was there, and right. Large Pro was working this beat machine. And I'm like, yo, I always I saw Pete Rock with one of those in the source. He was like, yeah, it's an SP. And he didn't know me. I was just some kid. And right. I was like, I want to get one. He's like, well, they don't really make them no more. I was like, okay. And then um, I went to Manny's Music in 48th Street, which is gone now, and, and they were saying something about, well, we just 
you know, reissued a small batch of these in black. Like instead of gray, they had the black mm -hmm. case. Now, is this a 12 or 1200? 1200 gotcha. with the internal uh, floppy drive. And that's when I ordered it. Like, I stopped the power play thing because I went back to school in Westchester, so I wasn't in Queens no more. So during the power play thing, though, just, just to kind of refocus on that just for a sec, like, mm -hmm. um, besides the Akinelli stuff, I mean, granted, you were there for a short period of time. Was there any other records you remember being made while you were sitting around? Or Roxanne Shantae, The Bitches Back. Oh. Because G-Rap and Shantae were there. They were, and Large Pro was there. They were doing um, Brothers Ain't Shit. Oh wow! Ooh, wee, doo, 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 that they were working on that, so they were both going on at the time. Those are the only two that were like ever, that were bigger. That, you were like you know. sweeping up the studio. Or I was something like sweeping. Like I was, <laughs> and I would go into the real to real room and just sweep, and then yeah. organize the tapes. And I would. I remember seeing Walking to the Sun, real to real, uh, organized confusion. I was wow. like, because <gasps> I was a big organized fan, so yeah. I was like, oh shit. Um. You know, so that's a great little education, though. Yeah, man. but but they don't have that anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like at, right. at that time, like the way to get in was an internship. You either interned at a label or yeah. a recording studio right. because that was your education. You didn't get paid, but you didn't have to pay. Exactly. Like, they didn't have schools for production or schools for DJing or right. schools on music business. You had internships and you just learned yeah. just by being there. Right. So I had that under my belt. I got the SP. I learned, you know, I learned how to use it. I was making demos locally. I would go to a little studio called Clockwork in Mamarinek, where I was living and going to school. Mm -hmm. And I would make demos. And then this girl named Tisa, I went to high school with, used to braid my hair. And she was cousins with Vance Wright. All right. And I, you know, and my other friend, Sean, who I played ball with, he was cousins with Vance Wright. So Vance had a lot of cousins. He was related to the Powell family, which is and my, one of my best friends, Varian Powell was also related to Vance. So they all, okay. you know, Vance was like the talk of the family. Like, yo, he's Rick's DJ. Yeah, so for people that might not know who he is, Vance Wright is like, you know, with Slick Rick's DJ. Slick Rick's DJ. And like and production. And producer, yeah, yeah. yeah, partner. So, but at the time, Slick Rick was in jail. Mm, wow, okay. So he had shot at his cousin or whatever, right, and right. he was locked up. So this was 93 going into 94. I remember because we went, me and my dad went to go see the program with Omar Epps and Holly Berry at, yes. at Whitestone Cinemas. And then uh -huh. after we left the movies, I was like, yo, I, I want to go play my demo for Vance. I got his address. And we left the Whitestone Cinemas and went to Horton and Brook in oh. New Rochelle. Now, anybody from New Rochelle wow. will tell you, Horton and Brook is bad. Like, it's a rough area. It's so wild because I can't remember the name of the Sadat X song, but Sadat actually shouts out those two streets in a song. Yeah, one of the things on Wild Cowboys. Yeah, I think Horton and Brook get a long look, I remember. Was yeah, H Horton and Brook was not the kind of area you wanted to just be. What's it like? It's Well, it was behind Lincoln Park, the, the Jets, the, the, mm -hmm. the projects. The, um, I forgot the actual name. The, the, the Hartley projects, okay. but they used to call them the Jets mm. and Lincoln Park. Yeah. I could think of any episodes I swung in Lincoln Park. That's what, yes. what was it. So they t they're tearing them down, but Lincoln Park hat was rough, man. It was a rough part of New Row, and Vance didn't live there, but he lived at a house that was off, like on the next block over. Right. So my dad brings me there. I got my demo tape in my pocket. And I'm like, Dad, just wait here. I'm going to go up and, and just play this for Vance. So I'm going to the door. I'm ringing the bell. Vance wasn't home. I guess he had forgot I was coming. And then dudes start kind of scoping out my dad's car because he's driving like a black car and the windows are like kind of half tinted. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to get my dad 
hemmed up out here. And I was like, so I just ran back to the car. I said, he's not home. Let's go. And he's like, yo, man, where are you bringing me, man? Like, these dudes are eyeing my car. And you're going to get me killed over some hip-hop, man. Like, what are you doing? And, you know, I called Vance. I was like, yo, man. He was like, yo, my bad. And then I kind of was like, he played me. So I just forgot about it. Right. My other best friend, Kevin Barty, he lived in New Row in another project. He lived in the Hollow. And he was walking down Main Street one day in, in 94. This was like in the spring. Like mm -hmm. I saw Vance around Halloween, and this was in like March. And All right. he walked into Vance's studio by accident. Like it just said studio on the thing. And he went to go check it out. And when Kevin saw it was Vance, he's like, yo, man, my boy Jay's been trying to get in touch with you. He was like, oh, yeah, I remember. Have him come down. So Kevin called me like, yo, I, I saw Vance. He wants you to, he remembers you from, he remembers he kind of stood you up. So he said, right, right. yo. Thursday, what are you doing after school? Nothing. I was like, all right, so I'll cut last period, and then I'll, I'll come to New Row and meet you. And we went there together, and Vance, I played Vance my demo, and he was like, it's dope. He's like, yo, I'm opening the studio. We need an intern. You want to intern for me this summer? I was like, yeah. He was like, it don't really pay, but if you learn this whole studio, it'll be paid. I was like, bet. So all that right. summer, I learned... I went in there and just swept floors, and I would watch Vance work, and Greg Nice was there. Nice. And, and he was working on, uh, Jewel of the Nile had just come out, but he was there just working with Fat Doug and a couple of local cats. Right, right. I have the one single, they had a single, it was like Greg, Fat Doug, um, Preacher Earl. Yeah. Those all guys them. all kind of like. All of them were, were, yeah. were in, in the mix, because Vance right. is a North Bronx cat, so they all oh, knew each other yes. from them. And, and Nourishell in the North Bronx are three miles away. So Right, right, right. So, Dope. You know, well, I, that's exciting, too, man. Yeah, like I mean, I, I did that over the summer. Right. And by the time school started in September, my senior year of high school, I knew how to use the ADATs, the reel-to-reel, -reel, the board, the compressor, everything. And he, so Vance made me a paid engineer. So then Dope. I would do sessions every Wednesday. Oh, with my boy Corey, like he used to just do beat tapes and stuff. And then on weekends, I would do, you know, real sessions like with people doing vocals. Right. That would that would book the room, right? Yeah, they would book, and and you know, I knew the room well enough for Vance. He could leave and leave me there. Wow. So you're the main engineer. Main engineer. Me Who are we the, talking about? Any significant? Record? The Young Guns came by one time, <laughs> and the anybody YGs. the YGs and the YGs used to roll with Pete Rock and yep. Heavy D and them. They were from Mount Vernon. Those guys were real scary. Like, anybody from Westchester who grew up in the, in the 80s or 90s knows about the Young Guns. Like, they, they had a reputation that leaked into the city because they were no joke. Like, yeah, those guys, wild dudes, those man. were wild dudes, man. And they had an EP out. It didn't do that well. So then they were just trying to work on some new material. And Vance left me there with the Young Guns one time. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm going to Cross County. You got this. You know, Kenny and Tommy Guest are coming through. Friday night, and I'm, I'd never been so nervous in my life, because he's like, yo, they're using the two-inch, which is the reel-to-reel. -reel. Now, I knew how to use it, but I was mainly an ADAT guy, because uh -huh. local people didn't have money. They couldn't afford a reel, so they would just get an ADAT, but they came in with a two-inch, and I was like, I had to do like an edit on the two-inch, so oh, I was shit. sweat bullets. Is I was it like, like with a razor blade yeah. type edit? So manual and, edit, taping. Yeah. yeah. And I so. was like, holy smokes, I'm going to die tonight. Like, these dudes, <laughs> they, they just, they're known for, like, ha causing havoc. Right. And they were talking. I was like, the whole time, I was like, yo, I love your album, man. <laughs> like, I'm just like, anything to make these guys not kill me. It's like, yo, I love your album. He's like, oh, good looking. He was like, I was like, yeah, but they kind of, 
gave it a low rating in the source. He's like, yeah, we we gonna find that motherfucker. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I'm gonna get killed tonight. But you know, I just kept stalling them because they were like writing re-edits to the song, and I didn't have to cut it. I didn't have to cut nice. the reel. I just kept stalling them and rewinding it and playing right. it until Vance got back. And when he got back, I don't think I've ever been so relieved in my life because <laughs> I know I would have blown it if I cut the reel. Right. You know. Oh, so. Man. So you know. Classic man. Yeah. So I mean, I was doing. This was like high school and like freshman year of college when I was at SUNY Purchase. But then um, I used to work with like Bill Blass from Yonkers, who was. Billy Loosecrews at the time, but he was known as Bill Blass. He used to battle DMX in Yonkers. And if you read DMX's book, Bill Blass was the, the man in Yonkers. And right. DMX was the underdog. He had to take Bill out. Right. But Bill was a monster. And a this nice is the guy. same Bill Blass that large professor? No, 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 no. This is Bill Blass from Yonkers. Yeah, okay. Get paid staff. It's just a bunch of cash from Yonkers. And I started working with them a lot because... Westchester, like every city, has a different mentality, like you, a different vibe, like Nurichel, Casmo, Verna, Casmo. But I always click with Cash from Yonkers. Okay, so always. how would you describe that that kind of group of guys? Well, they were just they were just grimy but nice right. guys. Right. Okay. Almost like how MOP is like grimy and scary, but then they they're hilarious and they're cool. Right. But you don't want to mess with them. Like no. it was the same kind of thing with the Yonkers cats. Like they were just cool. They were grimy as hell. They weren't in the fat like Mount Vernon and Nurcell's kind of like uptown, so there's like fashion. Right. Nurcell right? had a lot of the gods and stuff like that. Yonkers was just hard hood dudes, but they were just nice people. <laughs> they, they were nice, you know, they were like, hey you're the engineer, how you doing? Yeah, we got this idea, yada and they would get in the booth and just it would just be like yo yo like, you know what I'm like right. so um the guys from Yonkers were always real cool so I mean God rest his soul Jay Blend who just passed away was a producer and those guys would be working with like Jada and them I never met Jada and them right because they were probably getting their start around that time too. yeah well they were already out but they, they you know they had gotten on like the main source second album and then they hooked up with Puff you know, so they were on um, the second main source album. Yeah, the locks were. Yeah, they were on the posse cut. Bring, uh, right. bring it on. I forgot the name of the song, but they were on that album. Oh wow, amazing! Yeah. I got to go back to that. I got, I got the bootleg. Wax. Yeah. Um, so you know, but the Yonkers guys were always real cool. So I started working with them outside of the studio. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. You know, like I would go to Yonkers and work with some of those guys. I remember one of them lived in the Mulford Gardens projects, and they tore those down. Those things. That was the scariest project. Those were little short projects but they were right. desolate and I remember driving my car and being the only car on the block and I'm like wow. yo I'm gonna get killed tonight man it was just like <laughs> but it was like would you was, take the sampler into an apartment yeah I would go see Jay script? yeah I would go see Jay Blend who lived there and but it, you know being young and all about the music those were the things I wasn't making a whole lot I was making you know making money engineering and stuff but it, right. it, it wasn't there was no social media, nothing. So it wasn't really about fame. It was just I. It was a there was a passion there for the sure. music, sure, and an excitement because it's the first time around. And I think that same passion is similar to the passion I feel interviewing drummers now, or playing drums, or joining bands. And as a drummer, it's totally different. So I needed to find that passion again. Right. It's so, just shifted into a different a corner different thing. of the music. Yeah, like you have to find that kid again passion, as I call it, when it makes you feel like a kid because when you do something long enough, you get technically, you reach your peak technically, right. but psychologically you're just jaded and you're bored. And it's, it's impossible. So I was well, like, especially what? in hip hop too, which is, yeah, you know, it, it was a, just it like be a stale art form at times. Too. Yeah, like how can I get that feeling again in hip hop? I couldn't. Right. 
like I, I couldn't get that feeling in hip hop again. I, I tried and I just I wasn't feeling it. You know. Well, I mean, even that era too was like a trying era. I mean, as far as into the that that you know post nine eleven like mid two thousands and shit. Like there was a there was a you know saturated time. Um, um, yeah. So yeah, basically the point I'm I'm trying to get to is you know not to discount the fact that uh, you did like you know several like big somewhat ambitious full length albums you know mm-hmm. both your you know widely known like vocal albums but in the midst of that there were some great instrumental albums mm-hmm. too they're totally different I love the Jimi Hendrix one was I think is the most slept on one in that during in that canon mm-hmm. but like you know just because I feel like they got like some of those records did get like you know sick of being rich and and a job ain't nothing but work or like these two kind of like hit at this period of time in your career mm-hmm. which maybe you know, also kind of go back to the the era of the book right is shit but i know that was like kind of the end of a certain era for you too it yeah seemed like, right that's kind of a fair assessment perhaps mm-hmm. or getting towards that i mean now do you i know that you don't listen to those records but in the moment they're like they're funny they're well produced they're like your beats are like you know kind of like have like a uh, or your production rather it's like you're doing everything mm-hmm. on it right you're pretty produce engineer the shit yeah you know um uh like how do you and you're probably at touring your most of that period yeah too right yeah so what do you how do you look back on that without it being like that period of time was whack i mean obviously you were you were you've been you were dedicated to the craft oh i mean i think that period See, basically, what happened was Hug and She kind of went their separate ways. Right. So those are your like your main, your yeah, core Hug, dudes. Hug, right? Hug and Al She were the two MCs that they were on the first album because they were just around me at the time in school, and they were the most serious and talented. Right. So I, you know, I brought them along on this journey that was kind of like I wasn't planning that. I just wanted to produce, but I was making these records that I guess people liked and people liked them. And so I brought them along for Whoop Ass and Pimps and people got used to hearing us as a team. As different as we all were, people kind of liked all of us together because each of us brought something the other one didn't have. So we had the street shit with Sheed and the witty punchlines and stuff and the crazy stories. And Hug, he had this totally unique style and the social commentary, political stuff, and, and the more serious stuff. And then me, I was the joker and, and the musical, you know, I was kind of like the mad scientist that kind of pulled it all together. And it was a good, it, it was an odd pairing, but it was a pairing that worked. So around 02, you know, they wanted to go, there. she was still on the record. She's my man, 50 grand. Like he's been on everything I've done. Right. But he wanted to focus more on his thing and Hug went wanted to do his thing. So at that point, 2002 was like do or die for me because they were like common criticism was like those guys like Jay had you know had the beats and he's funny but he can't carry a whole album like they had the all the people who were lyrical 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 kind of people right like the people who were just hung up on bars and lyrics and like they I was a joker it was like listening to a skillet and Leroy record to hear me (laughs) So yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm going to have to carry a whole album without having these guys on there every other cut to hold me down. So 
I started actually, even though the records got sillier, I actually put more attention to my writing. Like the lyric, like the rhyming and the delivery and the rap, the rapping itself actually got better on those albums. Like they were, they were like it wasn't just like bitch Lucy Lou da da a jerk off. Uh, it, like <laughs> that was like the early shit. But then like yeah, those yeah. albums were they were crass and, and funny. But then the actually the, the some of those punchlines and the lines were actually laugh out loud funny. And and some oh, of the sure. and some of those concepts. Like playing, you know, the the edit these where I played everything backwards but the curses. <laughs> yeah, I love that shit. You know, like the the the, the one about the fake gold chain that was kind of like a just to get a rep tribute. Right. You know, like like those records. I mean, looking back, I can appreciate like they were like they were really different, than, you know, than a lot of what was happening in hip hop at the time. Absolutely, yeah. And, for um, sure. What record was Gadget Hose from? That was, that later. was later. That Peter was Pan Syndrome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's but, yeah, but also I mean, a brilliant concept. You know, you had Disco Ho, you had uh, right. the one with Devin, Greater Later. Yes, uh, the one with Devin, the dude was great. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, oh man, I, I used to just like come up with these crazy concepts and and and, and do this stuff, you know. Um, so it's not far from like a Prince Paul style of songwriting. Yeah, it, it was. I, he was a huge influence on me, and then also. One thing I realized, like, a lot of the people who influenced me as a rap artist were totally, the public totally didn't get them, and they were totally not successful right. commercially. So, like, when I wrote the book and looked back, I was like, my blueprint for an MC was <laughs> Afro, the Afros, No Face, Audio 2, uh, Tim like, Dog, Tim Dog who, was my, who was Tim Dog's greatest album of all time, is Tim Dog, right? So, yeah. like, you know... Well, the fact that you, I think me, I don't know another person that that even knows or ever talks about fucking No Face and shit. I love yeah, that. Like, album. Uh, me and my dad, to this day, we have inside jokes about No Face. We <laughs> love that record. It's hilarious. And like, and that dude was a great producer, too. One of the guys in the group. Yeah. Uh, Shah uh, Sha, Sha or... Um, yeah, there was... There it was, was that fat guy was the producer. Yeah, Shah. Yeah. He also did... Um, Bitches with problems, BWP, which was has some amazing production and writing. That woman, I reached out to the Lydia. Lydia I think her yeah, name truth was. be told, I reached out to her on Facebook to mm -hmm. interview her. Yeah. She has not written me back, but she's okay. out there somewhere. And her fuck those <laughs> singles and those music videos was, are I mean, incredible. I, I, you know, like I, I always just kind of like found the humor in that. And I, right. and and my biggest quandary as an artist was I took my craft seriously. But I didn't take myself seriously. And I, I don't think right, that right. people... That used to bother me because people used to think I was a novelty act. Like, yo, he's coming on stage with this fur coat. Mm -hmm. He's talking those crazy stuff. But if they'd have known that I used to, like, sit there for hours getting those sound bites off black and white TV, like, I would leave the VCR running. Oh, yeah, you had the sound bites, like, heavy. I used to archive those things. Just black and white TV shows. Gunsmoke and right. 77 Sunset Strip and McCloud <laughs> and Mannix and Banachek and Dan August and all these wow. de old 60s detective shows. I used to, and even like to be you know, bewitched and get smart and yeah. hazel and courtship of Eddie's father, like all this. <laughs> some of the I know some of those. I don't know all those. No, shows. I'm a TV buff, so I mean, like I would tape those shows, and then I would have I would like, play back the VHS tape the next day while I was doing laundry or cleaning the studio or organizing records. And when I would hear something that could be bent out of context, right. I used to put it on a dat, and I used to have these dats of sound bites, and I used to write down what was on them. 
So when I was doing a song and I would read what was on the contents, I was like, yo, that line could go in the context of this song. So I was very detail oriented and I took a lot of pride in my production and the craftsmanship of, of making records. But people saw me as a, because of the comedic element, they saw me as a novelty act and that really used to get under my skin. But what am I going to do? Like make records about keeping it real hip hop? Like, what, like that's not what I do. So sure. like, how do I get taken seriously, you know, and still, so I was kind of in this, in this bind where it was like, I didn't know, I only could be the artist that I was naturally, mm -hmm. but I was tired of people not taking me seriously. So after those two albums, Sick of Being Rich and A Job Ain't Nothing But Work, they didn't sell that well. And it was kind of like, well, he's a novelty act because not having Hug and Sheed there to bring different elements, mm -hmm. they were just seen as comedy rap. And comedy rap, regardless of whether it's good or not, just always gets this rap of like, well, it's not anything to be taken seriously. Yeah, so like it's a novelty. Yeah. So that bothered me so much that that's why, I mean, you mentioned earlier, like experience and stuff like those. I, I released a flurry of producer-based projects in, in reaction to the reaction to those two solo albums. But you know what's interesting is when you when you think about like contemporary comedy um, rap shit, now there's like a whole industry that's kind of out, totally seemingly unrelated to hip hop. I mean, mm -hmm. the, these performers are fans, but they were never, they didn't come up the ranks that you did where there's like this whole like nerdcore rap world, like mm -hmm. MC Chris, and uh, MC Lars and these, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with these cats mm -hmm. at all, but that have flourishing careers where it's like, you know, on some Adult Swim type audience shit. You yeah, know? yeah. Whereas I don't see there's no reason why your style of comedy didn't fall into that. It just maybe it was, and this is all theoretical, it's just that like it was... Maybe the the comedy world didn't. There was it was before a time when you could really connect hip hop and comedy so yeah. seamlessly. It shit. was yeah. I came out of the indie rap era, and right. the whole indie rap thing, especially in New York, was it was. I always say this: the indie rap world of that era was a poor man's mainstream. What it really was was a treehouse in reaction to Puffy. That's uh, what it was. Right. So it's like these guys with their their jiggy bad boy suits and sampling hits from the eighties and. The materialism, we're gonna be the Keebler Elves and we're gonna build this <laughs> treehouse up here where you have to, you only can sample records that are like rare and, and haven't right. been reissued yet. You, you have to have drums sound like this and you have to rap about keeping it real. You can't talk about this or this or that. And you know, when you're, you know, when you're in your college dorm and you're looking for your, you know, where you're gonna fit in as you plan your music career, that looks more forgiving than trying to go up to Rough Riders and get a deal. Right, but right. when you get there, I like Poison Clan. I like Two Live Crew, Afros, No Face. Like as an MC, I was more inspired by that mm -hmm. than I was, you know, the contemporaries, the, the boom bap, you know, what they were inspired by, like the lyric, more lyrical guys. Like right. I love all that stuff, but sure. I was I was more inspired by JT Money. <laughs> but I yes. was, but musically, I was inspired by Mr. Hood. So like, where do I fit in? Right, right. And now there's there's a lane for everything because you can go directly to your audience. You mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Twitter, my not Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. You know, you can kind of Instagram just just burrow out a lane 
right. for, for yourself, and then you get this following. But back then, it's like the closest common denominator. It's like, well, your records have samples in them. They don't sell a whole bunch. They're not like gangsted out. You're not talking about how, how your sneakers match your truck and your jewels and the money and all that. So we're going to stick you in the indie thing. But then it's like, all I would do shows with like people in that world and they would look at me like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, and <laughs> right. they were just like boring, just want to be lyrical. And right. How many people in the house tonight love real hip hop? Like I, I used to be on bills with, with that shit. Oh, I know. Just, go nuts and I said okay I'm coming out with a fur coat and I used to go hardcore in the other direction because I was right. like I want to bring the entertaining element to music but this is crafted like there's a lot of time and effort put into this I'm not a novelty act I just don't I want to do something different and at the time there wasn't enough like I said the social media and the different portals and Band camp and ways no, to release. No, it didn't things. exist. It, it didn't was magazines, exist. basically, it and college radio. Yeah, magazines and college radio. So, you know, it's kind of like I wound up having no place to go. That's right. what that's what happened to those records, you know. And right, right. It, it was it was like it was frustrating because I felt like everywhere I went, somebody liked something about me, but something else they couldn't fuck with. Mm -hmm. So, like in the indie world, they liked the fact that I was sampling weird records and I was kind of self deprecating. But I was also pretty vulgar and, and you know, right. brash and yep. wild. And it was all done in fun. But people were, like, really, like, yo, he's a misogynist. So, like, they couldn't mess with the acerbic nature of the character. Right, and they right. couldn't tell if I was dissing them or if I was being sarcastic. Cause it I was, like, to, some modern-day, like, Red Fox-style sense of yeah, humor. Yeah, that, yeah, because I grew up listening to Dolomite and yeah. Red Fox and Paul Mooney and... And, and all that stuff like Wild Man Steve I mean these yes. records these records were my house so to me Two Live Crew and all that stuff was just an extension of that and then right. I was more of like a nerdy extension of that right you know but, but the audience might not have grown they, up they, with that they didn't grow up with that yeah you know what I'm saying like a lot of indie hip hop kids came out of the rock background sure you know what I'm saying or they were just hip hop purists who just got disenchanted with major label rap and found their way into the indie circuit, but they didn't grow up with it. So to me, I'm thinking, well, oh, they'll they'll know I'm kidding, or they'll know old made billionaires. I'm obviously not a billionaire. They'll get right. it. And then they, they, he's flashing his money around. Like I don't have any money. Like where, where is this <laughs> right. coming from? Right. So I just think there was there was. No, I mean, now if that stuff came out now, I think it might have more of a fair playing field, and it could exist on its own as it is, rather than okay, he's on Fat Beat, so we're gonna. You know, we're going to have him tour with these other artists on Fat Beats. And then when you go do a show, like, their fans don't like me and my fans don't like them. It was right. just so segregated yep. that I started to get frustrated. Yeah, yeah. And I eventually just said, I want to be a producer. That was, I never wanted to be rapper. I only wanted, I wanted to just produce. Let me go back to that. So I started doing a series of instrumental projects around 05. You know, I did the Boss Hog Barbarians with self-titled. Yeah, classic. And um, yeah, like, and I rapped on that, but I was really trying to put self in the front because he's just a monster. He's a better MC. He's a monster MC. So I wanted, oh, yeah. to, and he never had a solo album. So I was like, let me have self be that guy with the. It was kind of like Mob Deep, like Havoc could rhyme, but Prodigy was like the main guy, and Havoc right. did the music. He was the right. musical mastermind, and he would rhyme also and augment. So I was the Havoc, and Self was the Prodigy. Like that was my goal with that. But then it was like you know, 
because of the nature of the comedy and how we were, you know, people, again, saw it as novelty. So after that, I just started doing a lot of instrumental uh, and producing, and producing for other, other people, people. Like right. Sadat at the time. Yeah, you, so you, I want to talk about that, too, because it's funny with the TV stuff that you recorded. I was curious. So we did a record on Sadat's album that I put out, Black October, and that was like in maybe 07. It was before he got locked up. So we did this album really quickly on the fly and uh we did a record with you called x is a machine yeah uh which i went which sadat and i did two tours back to back in europe and, and this one with uh me greg nice and geology one with me and lord jamar and sadat so we did x is a machine throughout that whole tour mm-hmm. and um it's like a classic j-zone production uh, mm-hmm. rolling uh, you know piano line and like kind of a jittery drum beat and stuff but there's this like clearly an old TV show where the guy's saying that's X-Man or something like that yeah. X-Man and then you also I mean I don't know how many people would catch this or remember this if you go back to it there's also the shit from either Public Enemy or Terminator X album where X yeah, Terminator it was from X. the radio call in thing yeah yeah did. yeah so what was the not to go long on this particular thing but because I think me and X went to your place. Mm-hmm. In Queens, um, yeah. You yeah. guys came through and did it. And I remember he did a, a cameo for To Love a Hooker at the time because I was oh, working right. on that instrumental album and he played the guy in the strip club. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like the, the trade-off. You know what I mean? Like, Hell yeah. Can you do this for me? Yeah, no doubt. And, <laughs> and, you know, he, he did it. For, I gave him a script and he read it and that was it. But at that point, I was really trying to be more of a producer because I just felt the J-Zone character was kind of like lowering my stock as a producer. Right, right, right. I got, people, I got you. you. Know, so people would think novelty before they would think beats. And that was bothering me. You know, but then eventually, like, I kind of just kept going. You know, I did, like, the Chief Chinchilla stuff, like the, right. the Gators and Furs mix show. And then I did the Live at the Liquor Store album. But I'm naturally like a humorous guy, so like the humor came back out again. I just channeled it through Chief Chinchilla. I'm like, well, if I just stay on the production and leave all the silly shit to an alter ego, maybe people will realize that I'm separate from it and listen to the production and realize that's what I'm trying to do. And then it was just kind of like novelty again. So I just felt like I was so far gone into that and pigeonholed deep into that. And, you know, I just felt there was nowhere to go. So... I kind of just started focusing on DJing at that time, and then I was also a sports reporter, so I just right. kind of stepped away from music more to just figure out what am I going to do because I can't keep going down this because of this dwindling, diminishing returns right. with every release. But I would love to talk about your other production stuff because, you know, it's you know we, it's a host of different rappers and shit. Yeah. But really quickly before, do you remember what the sample was on the X is a Machine song? Which one? That's like, X Man. Yeah, that's X Man. It was X-Men. one of those. <laughs> it was one of those black and white. Sounds like it's from the fifties. Yeah, it, it, it could have been. It was surf. like a man and a woman talking. I think it could have been like X Man. I don't remember because I I didn't keep track of the shows during that era. It could have been like Surfside Six or one of those shows. <laughs> okay. Bourbon Street Beat. I don't know. Like one of the wow. one of those shows. So it's like well beyond any Nick at Night kind of. Program. Oh yeah, this was like a local cable act. You know. Uh, local public access channel that used to run 50s 
detective. She's got cop shows. It's like when they were like you know the movie Juice. Like when they were yeah uh, when they were White when, Heat. They're watching the um, yeah. What's Tupac watching when when he's like he's straight White Heat? That's White Heat, isn't it? Top of the world, mom. Top of the world. Yeah, where he's in jail. Yeah, in the middle of the day. Yeah. I love that. That's a, such a classic New York thing, right there. Like some old ass show. Yeah, it's on. It's on twenty four hours a day in New York City. Or at one point in a time, it was. Yeah, it was they used to have kung fu flicks and different things right. on. So I mean, like. I would just grab stuff from there. Right, right. And, you know, X-Men, I mean, I don't know what made me grab that. Maybe it's just the way he said it. But then I wasn't thinking like, oh, Sadat. I just said, oh, that sounds interesting. Let me yeah, archive yeah, yeah. it. And then when I was working with Sadat, I was like, oh, there you go. Right. <laughs> you so know? who else did you do during that time? You did. You had something. You did something on Dell's album. Mm. Dell's 11th Hour album. I did something for Dell. 11th hour. You did some other Hyro shit. Yeah, I did a lot of Hyro. So shout out to Ian Davis, too. He's a good dude. Oh, yes. Ian, Ian Davis. ID used to, uh, he just bought the new Do Rights album today. So. Oh, that's what's up. Shout out to my man. He, um, you did some of A plus. Yeah, uh, I did something on My Last Good Deed. And then I did three joints for Casual on oh, Smash yeah. Rockwell, but only two of them wound up on the album. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I did extended work with, with Hieroglyphics. One of them had Opio on it. Um, so I was I was doing a lot of work with Hyro at the time. I mean, did you do something with E Forty too, or what? Well, uh, Lonely Island. Yeah. So what's the story with that? That was obviously a huge record. That was probably the that, most known Grammy, record. Is that a Grammy winner comedy album or no? I think they were nominated. Okay. I don't know if they won, but um, I'm not sure. But what how that came about? This was around that time, like '08, around the time Liquor Store came out, right? That's a good look, man. That was a good look. Yeah, that was Danger Mouse who helped me with that. He, oh, that's um, Danger Mouse hit me up like, "Yo, man, I turned you know I turned on the guys from Saturday Night Live onto your stuff. You ever heard of Lonely Island?" And I was like, "I didn't know." But then he was like saying, "Remember the, the Dick in the Box?" I was like, "Oh shit, yeah, they're funny." And he was like, "Yeah, they they you know because that shit was hilarious." Right. And, and it was. He, he was like, "Yeah, you know um, they want to you know I sent them." Uh, some of your albums in that liquor store thing or whatever, and they're, they're feeling it like they want to uh, work with you and um, send them some beats. So I sent, you know, I sent them some beats and they picked that one beat and they were like, it sounds like they're saying gangsta. And I'm like, oh yeah, that one. And then it was like something that nobody in indie rap would have picked because the drums are just like, it's like some West Coast shit. Mm-hmm. Like, it does, you know, like a New York dude, but it was just this hard pimp slapping with the claps and shit so right. it was it was Jay Zonis but it was it wasn't no boom bap gritty it was like totally awful it was like some synthed out type of thing but it still had that quirkiness to it so they they chose that and they were looking at who to get on it and when they called me told me E40 was on it I had to pull over I was driving I pulled <laughs> over the side I'm like no you're kidding me they were like yeah 40's going to get on it I was like oh, oh. so that was and and the, the thing about that Pardon me. The thing about that that was kind of a shame was that 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 was like that should be your motivation to keep going because yes. like E Forty, I was always a Forty fan and he was always out of my reach. Right. I got that. It's on a major. I mean, there was no royalties because the guy sample took everything, so there's no publishing. But it's a visible record, the most visible one to that point. I worked with Forty. That should make you hungry. But when the record came out in early '09. That was when I was kind of just starting to lose interest in right, hip hop, right. like like making beats, and I I only made two beats that year. 
Oh wow! You know, in '09, so almost totally out. Of the I was, game, I right? was on by the, you know, by by the spring of 2009, I had completely stopped mm-hmm. making beats, and all of 2010, I didn't make any music because my equipment was boxed up. Oh wow! So like, the, so this well, is a time when you were kind of focusing. You were doing the teaching thing, right, mm-hmm. and the sports stuff, the yeah, basketball stuff. I, I was, I was still teaching at Purchase, SUNY Purchase. I was teaching an independent study, um, but then it's like. I even found myself like I love the kids. They were great. And, you know, but I just found myself jaded because my kids would come in and be like, hey, have you heard the new one by this rapper? You know, they were they were in a new generation. So they were playing me new rap. And I was kind of like, ah, you know, (laughs) now I understand, you know, what I'm saying, because every generation has their music. You even if it's not for you, you can't really knock it because it's not made for you. But I was just kind of like, oh, it doesn't sound like yada, yada. And. You know, so I was just like kind of just jaded, which is not a good thing if you're going to make music. Like, even if you don't like the music, your kids bring in music, like you try to figure out why they like it and just get a better understanding. Definitely. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you realize if you act bitter about it, it's only going to make them hate your music more and like this stuff, like, their, you know, like their stuff more. Like, that's the reaction. Like, yeah. growing up when my, you know, when my grandparents hated rap, that made me love rap more. Right. Like, oh, they don't like cursing and defiling women. Well, I'm going to buy more rap that does even more because right. it makes it's part of your youth. Like, you want to embrace it. And you can see that in today's um, kind of that dynamic between, like, the younger cats with these, oh, quote, unquote, old heads. God, and shit. I don't even want to that. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing, though. So it's just going to keep just, on happening. Yeah, it's, it's, just, just it's, just, it's just like... This is a little more. They're and the media each likes other. to feed that because they oh, know totally. it's gonna it's gonna incite a riot in the comments and the trolls. Oh, yeah, it's all clickbait crap. I anyway, just but. I just totally ignore all that stuff. I mean, I'll I'll make I'll leave a comment, but it's just about how it's stupid. Like right, I don't right. I don't pick sides and get involved. So right right. But me at that time, you know, I was just feeling kind of jaded, but I was still teaching. And then the, there was budget cuts, so I lost that gig. And then um, I wound up just doing sports reporting and I was away from music. But then you're around high school ball players all the time. And the high school kids at every game, they're playing the most current rap. Absolutely. So then you're faced with it again. And eventually you kind of just have to say like, all right, this is what they like. You know, but my time was my time. Their time is their time. But I would just kind of like, I didn't know if I made music where I would go. Because I'm like, I'm not going to make stuff like this. My stuff wasn't doing well. So like, what would I make? And then I kind of just said like, let me just, I'm not feeling music. Like I'm forcing this. Like every time I would try to make a beat, it would be, I would be forced. And I just, Mm -hmm. I I didn't want to go shopping for records. I damn sure didn't want to rap. That was out of the question. So I left music alone for, you know, for about for about two years, two and a half years, I was I didn't make any music whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, from '09 to 2011, I didn't make one note of music. Interesting. And then, like the book that we started with, this that came out like around that time. That I was I that was time. writing. That so was I started a, writing instead. Right. My 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 creative juices came from writing instead of music. So that was when I was writing for Dante Ross regularly, and then right. eventually, Ego Trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was doing the basketball stuff, and then I had a job at schools, right? You know, to make mo- at more more money. And my only creative outlet at that time was writing. So uh, I'll never forget. I wrote an article like when Kanye, I think it was the Taylor Swift thing mm-hmm. happened, and I wrote I wrote like a blog post about like because I th- I thought it was hilarious. 
And I was like, yo, I'm like, yo, Kanye's antics are better than his music. Like I wrote that and then all and thinking that, you know, because I was like, yo, this guy's hilarious. And then people were actually like, yo, you're just mad and jealous because he made it and you did. I was like, damn, like people are really coming at me, you know, and then I realized like, you know, because I was a producer MC, I mean, it looks that way. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, so that's what they associate you with, right? Yeah. So, I mean, here's a producer MC talking about another producer MC. And right. I'm like, that's why I can't write about music and make music at the same time. That's why yeah. you don't, you don't yeah. see me writing. Like, like I'll interview drummers for my, my, my podcast, but I won't write opinions about other people's music because I just feel like when you're a writer, it's like critiquing is like kind of part of your thing and you're outside of it but when you when you're making music i feel like i don't have anything to say about another musician yeah i feel you so like now i would never write something like that because i'm making music and i'm like i who i can't credit i mean kanye's an artist that's his art i can't speak on it you know what i'm saying like i i I, who am i to have an opinion on because i'm making my own art now but it's not to say that what he did to Taylor Swift wasn't totally hilarious I thought it was hysterical I was cracking up I mean that's hip hop that's hip hop that's hip hop and he had the ball of Hennessy yeah bum rush the show I mean I thought it was great and I wrote it was great but I said all that all that because everybody the general consensus was like oh man all his ego is terrible you know but he's so talented and my thing was like well this guy ain't that dope but his ego is great i think his, his <laughs> antics are amazing like this right. guy is I, I was like i want to meet him i want to buy him a dinner this guy's great <laughs> but i was like but his music i don't see what the big deal was at the time that's what i was sure. saying and people was took that as jealousy like oh you're just saying that for shock value and i wasn't that was how i felt at the time right, but right. then it was kind of like i also realized that that was my introduction to the hater Thing. I mean, we knew the hater stuff, stuff from Bad Boy era because everybody right. was like, hey, but that was when everybody's opinion on the Internet started to pop out. And, you know, you say things about people and people say, oh, you're just mad. You're just bitter. So I would hear that. And then I was like, I'm not I was like, I am mad and bitter, but not about someone else's success. I'm kind of just like frustrated with the music. So I just it was like a, it was a confusing place to be. So I just right, right. said, let me just step away from the music. And leave it alone because I'm not passionate about it. I'm here like writing about other people's music, which is not my place because I'm a musician. And and let me just figure this out. But then before I knew it, I just forgot about music. Like I was working on the book and just working and writing and covering sports. And I just I didn't even think about music like days would go by. And then, you know, when I wanted to listen to music during that time, I found myself going back to the old funk and jazz records that yes, I grew up sure. on. And I was like, you know, when I would burn, because this was before, you know, I, this is like 2010, 11. I'm, I'm a Luddite, so I'm never up on technology. But I would always burn CDs for the, the drive to wine dance because that's an hour drive to work. Yeah. So I used to burn CDs in the car, listen to it in the car. And I would always usually make hip hop CDs or whatever. And I, I remember I made a CD that only had like Billy Cobham and like uh, Keith Hartley Band, which was an old rock band from the 70s. I'm not hip to them. Billy Cobham, I love. But yeah, yeah, but it was just a rock band. Yeah, it yeah. was just like a, like a rock site kind of bit. Okay. And like I used to listen to that CD and I'm like, all I'm listening to in the car is like old rock, old funk, old jazz. But I wasn't making any music. And like hip hop, I just had no interest whatsoever. Right, right, right. But then, you know, when the book finally came out, 
you know, it was like, okay, well, what's next? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to write another book. I'm not going to keep blogging because I can't sustain that. And, mm-hmm. and, and when, you, when you write for blogs, like, you can only write so many blogs about the impact of Tim Dog's album on your life. <laughs> Eventually, when you write a blog, like, yo, this happened in the news today in hip-hop, parody that. So, like, um, you know, like, so, like, something happened with, like, Chris Brown or something, and, you know, I, I had to sit there and think, like, how can I parody this? Like, when Mob Deep, when Having a Prodigy were having problems, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, well, you know, they broke up on, or some group, Naughty by Nature, somebody broke up on Twitter. Yeah. Like, there was, I like... it was Naughty by Nature, maybe. Or something like that. So, I was like... What would happen if NWA broke up on Twitter? So I cre- we created all these fake handles, Twitter handles for Jerry Heller, Easy, Ren, Yellow, <laughs> Dre, and Cube, and Arabian Prince, and Tim Dog. <laughs> and I was doing this hilarious exchange. But, and it was funny, but it was like, I realized if you're going to be a writer and, and write about music, and particularly hip-hop, like you kind of have to be just be super aware of everything, that current events that's happening, and then you have to form an opinion and get it out fast. Oh yeah. You have to write it like if something happens at four o'clock, you gotta be at your computer by seven and you gotta have something up by eleven at night. Like here's a hilarious take on what just happened. Right. And I I had no interest in doing that. I just as a writer, I just had some things bottled up I wanted to say. I had, you know, a, appreciation posts that I always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I got them out of my system. I'm like, I don't see myself being a regular writer who's gonna <laughs> <laughs> drop. Um, you good? Mic drop. No, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm okay. good. It's still wrong. Um, so I wasn't going to be that kind of a writer mm-hmm. to where I was just going to keep up with current events. The whole idea of content, as they say, I didn't yeah. like. Yeah. Like, it's it became unnerving. like, I was like, let me write something that I'm feeling. And in, in, the, in the world of journalism, it's quote unquote content. We need content. We need right. three things today. We need this, this. And even with basketball, like, it was content. Like, what schools is that kid talking to? Find out. Content. Right. And I was like, as a writer, I, I have no interest in just writing just to keep up with you know, current events. That's almost being a reporter. You yeah. Know, like, that's your day Being job. a reporter and then I put your Jay's own spin on the reporting and give us an idea. Mm-hmm. Give, give us something entertaining. And I just, you know, in 2012, I kind of did that for a while. And I, you know, I was like, the book died down. I was done with that. And, you know, I had been DJing a lot. Because of my my the book increased my profile, so like I played sound set and I was playing like a lot of I wasn't gonna rap again. That was out of the question, mm-hmm. especially live. So when I, when I had the book out, they were like, "Well, instead of doing readings, we want to book you to promote your book. Maybe you can DJ." So I would come out and play funk forty fives and mm-hmm. stuff, not thinking nothing of it. But then I loved playing funk forty five so much that. I was like, man, I want to make this kind of music. Like, I've been listening to this in the car for the last few years. I've been going back to my roots as funk. And, you know, I, I haven't really been feeling the hip-hop thing so much. Like, maybe this is... But I'm like, how am I going to do it? So I was like, maybe I'll pick the bass back up. So I started going into Sam Ash and picking up basses and just playing around. Whenever mm. I passed Sam Ash, right. I would just fiddle with it. And I was like, you know, uh, maybe... You know, but then I, I saw, I started, you know, I saw footage of Clyde Stubblefield playing behind James Brown at the Boston Garden. And I was like, to see him in action, I was like, oh my God. Oh, was that that, not the famous um, concert they did? What, what years are we talking 68. about? 68. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Boston like, Garden where yeah, he stopped the ride. Yeah, that yeah. One. yeah. 
Clyde took a solo in Cold Sweat, and I was just watching him, and I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> but, you know, like, I'm doing odd jobs. The book kind of died down. I'm like, how am I going to have time to practice drums, and I got to survive? So, but that's exactly what I did. I just, I went and got a, a cheap drum kit. My, my pops had surprised me with one because I had been talking about it. He came up to visit and he was like, I want to see you making music again. Nice. Like, that's, that's your calling. I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do something. You've been talking about drums. And he just picked up a cheap drum kit for me and left it in the basement. I was like, whoa. So then I just started practicing and for six months I would practice like once a week and stuff. And then, then one day I just said, what am I going to do with, like, am I going to go back to rapping? Am I, I'm not feeling production. I'm not going to be a rap. Like, what am I, I've been doing odd jobs. I've been trying to get into the school district. There's all kinds of nepotism and stuff stopping me from getting in there. I worked as a salesman, hated that. I'm like, my thing is, my calling is music, but I have to find my next move. And what I started doing was I just had to channel my, how I was as a nine-year-old. I was like, okay, so when I, when I became a bass prodigy at 10, what was I doing? Okay, I would go to school from nine to three, and I would come home at four, I would do my homework, and from five to nine, I would sit there and play. Oh, wow. So I was like, all right, I guess school, repl- you know, work replaces school, so like I do what I have to do to generate income, whether it's my DJ gigs, whether it's an odd job on Craigslist, whether it's a going back to the school district for a week at a, a week here and there to sub, right. you know, whether it's covering a random tournament here and there because I can make a bunch of money at once covering a tournament. So I would just do whatever it took to make money, but I, I said, I'm going to set aside three, four hours a day to sit at those drums and practice. And I, I'm going to get some theory books. I'm going to take a couple of lessons. I took lessons from nice. one of my students at Purchase because I started teaching cool. again. okay. And he was like, if you show me some production, I'll show you drum basics. And he showed me basic rudiments and yeah, fundamental how, type how shit, right? count, Yeah, technique and th- things like that. And the summer of 2012, I used to go down there and just practice hours a day. Like, you know, living by the seat of my pants, like making money like day by day. Like, what am I going to do to make money today? And I, I, would just, I know that feeling. I remember one time I sold a whole bunch of crates of my records because I couldn't find like work for the day. I was like, sure, man. I was like, I don't want, I don't need these records anymore. So I would sell records, get hundreds of dollars selling that because I was like, I don't listen to these records. Like right. records I bought to sample. Like I'm like, I'm not even making beats. Like I, so I right. sold all my sample records. Like just sold them, and I was like, I'll survive, and then I'm gonna practice. And it was kind of a scary thing to do because I'm like, this could not work. You know, like I'm learning how to play at 35, I'm not seven. Right. But I started learning how to play, and then when I started recording myself, I I figured out a way. RJD2 helped me get some microphones in the studio and taught me a couple of things about recording drums. And when I was recording myself, I was like, man. I'm not the greatest drummer, but these things sound like the old records I would sample. Like, mm-hmm. the quality. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing, but the way I'm recording drums, it doesn't sound crappy. Like, most people, when they go in the studio to record drums, they sound kind of sterile. There's a big problem recording drums. Let's just say that. That's always the issue, like, how to get a good drum sound. Right, right, right. So, I was getting that sound with, like, some cheap equipment. So, I was like, well, what if I made a beat and used my drumming instead of sampling drums and like you know because i used to like oh you mean sample yourself and recut it in yeah. the sampler 
right. rather than sample. Because what I one thing I used to do when I was making beats is I was long after they went out of fashion. I used to sample drum rolls. I used to go looking through records, looking for right. like that fell out of fashion in the sometime in the early mid nineties. Like people right. stopped doing that. Like people started programming like. You would listen to like Laura Finesse or Buck Wild and be like, Kum, da, 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 kum, get, get, get. you know, they, yeah. they brought in the programming aspect and Pete mm-hmm. Rock and those guys. Mm-hmm. So you didn't hear people sampling crazy drum fills, but I always had wild drum fills. I always loved drum fills, so I used to put them, I used to spend hours putting those things on discs. Yeah, I mean, Sets of Sonic had the classic one with. Uh, well, that was Bobby Simmons probably. Playing it probably. Yeah, Ghost Stetsa. So. That was, you know, so I was like, what if I was able to do my own drum fills and do my yes, own drum yeah, yeah, yeah. So then as an experiment, I said, well, let me press up a 45. I'll, there was a song called The Drug Song that was actually on Live at the Liquor Store as a bonus instrumental. And everybody who heard it loved it, but nobody knew about it because mm-hmm. the record sold so poorly. Mm-hmm. And it was 08, like I was old news by that point. So no one was really paying attention. Right. And I was like, what if I reworked that and give the drums more of a live feel and really focus on drums like rhythm so i came up with like a reworking of that and i'm like man if i played this out at one of my parties i'm djing this would go over it's up tempo it's funky the drums are wild i was like i was like okay well what am i gonna put on the b-side and there was like a beat i made for lonely island the last beat i ever made in 09 before i quit and they never used it and i was like let me make a rap song out of that just to put something on the flip side, because right. you know I have a bad history with instrumental records. Like whenever I release something entirely instrumental back then, it never sold. So I'm like, well, let me put a Jay's own record on there to sell it and use the drug song as the A side, because that's where I'm trying to go. Oh, like a split, yeah, a yeah. split, and and I'll get to it later on. But that eventually became a theme of mine, like a rap song on the B side and mm-hmm. where I'm trying to go on the A side. So I, I did the drug song, and then I did the fox hunt with Breeze Bruin. That was the rap song, and I wrote a quick verse. Breeze wrote a verse, put it out, not thinking nothing of it, and the record did well. Like, yo, Jay's on his back. I'm like, I'm not back. I just wanted to, I put a rap song on there to sell the instrumental side. But then the record did well, and like, I'm still struggling to find work, and I'm getting a little better on the drums. And so I start, I said, well, let me come up with another 45. You know, I'm like, what am I going to rap about? And then I was like, well, a lot of those book chapters could make good rap songs. So I took the gadget hole thing and made a song. So I was going to do a Molotov cocktail gadget hole 45. Mm -hmm. Molotov was an instrumental with me drumming. That's the first song I ever really drummed on in my catalog. Mm -hmm. So I came up with this, all the crazy drums. I'm like, yo, this is what I want to be doing. But then the B side was gadget hole. I was like, okay, let me just put this out. But then... I was having such a hard time finding work and, and such a hard time. Like at the time I was, I had just turned 36. So there's people like, yo, are you going to get married? Are you going to have kids? I'm like, I can't even, uh, I'm learning how to play drums and trying to keep my head above drums water. Out first, you know? and like I can't afford to start no family, you know? Yeah, I feel it. So like with all the trials and tribulations of like my everyday life at the time. Yeah. One day I was like, I, I came from like a job fair and it was like a really, like they wanted me to, work for, like edible arrangements like drive the car for the valentine's day rush i'm like jay's own driving the <laughs> delivering flowers and cakes on valentine's day for like no money <laughs> and i was like that's so sad that it's actually funny right and i came home 
I told them I got in a car accident. I called them up on Valentine's. I was like, listen, I'm not going to do that. I, I got in a car accident. You okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm not going to come in. Hung up. And I was like, I know what my next album is going to be. I'm going to make an album about adulthood and like what that means and like what happens if because we're in a we have like generations of millennials like millennials and even some gen xers like the school the student loans are so crazy like most people my age couldn't afford a house most people my yeah. age aren't married most people right. my age a lot of or younger like the, the generation right after me but it just so happens that i'm at the tail end of gen x where like a lot of my older peers were more like my parents they got married they got a job right out of college they're right, stable right. But me, I felt more like a millennial. I'm like, I'm 36, I'm odd job and learning to play drums. You know, I'm single, like I can't really afford to date right now. Like all this stuff and I'm like, I feel like, you know, I'm taking care of my grandmother, which at the time was a, a reality. Yes. So I'm like, you know, most people when you're, when, you're, when you're this age, you're supposed to have your house and your car and your wife. And, right, right. and I'm like, you know, but like, I hate, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near any of that. I'm learning how to play drums with my free time. I hate text messaging. <laughs> you know, I'm going on, I'm doing online dating. I hate all the dates I'm on. Everybody wants to text. I hate texting. You know, like I'm going into Whole Foods and seeing people like, you know, buy, like they'll buy a juice that's like $17. And I'm <laughs> like, how do they afford so, like, I'm like, what if I made a song about, like, doing a slip and fall on a Whole Foods and suing them? Like, just all this weird stuff started coming to my head. And I'm like, I'm going to make this album. And that became Peter Pan Syndrome. I recorded that album in three months. <laughs> Hell yeah. You know, and I was like, and, the, and, and the, this, you know, the, the concept of the album was growing old, not so gracefully. And, like, this, this like, kind of melancholy undertone of, like, yo, what am I going to do if I don't fit into the status quo? Right. What happens? Like, what happens if, you know, like, when I, this is my story, like, how bad is my life? You know, because we're also in the Facebook era at this point, so everybody's, uh, yesterday at 2.50 a.m., such and such was born, six pounds, two ounces, 900 likes under the photo. And then I'm like, <laughs> hey, I'm learning to play drums, two likes under the <laughs> So you're like, you're looking at, it's like, hey, I just got a new job, 150 likes. Like, you know, um, yo, I'm finally learning how to play an instrument. This is, this is great three likes <laughs> you know right. I would tell people yo man I'm learning to play drums yeah but are you going to get a job you know so it, yeah, you man. know the social media at the time were just making me you know makes you feel bad about yourself oh for sure and, and like because we're in this thing of comparison so like I was like I could either get depressed and wind up like I was in 2010 again and get mm -hmm. even further into a depression or I could turn this thing around and try to make an album with the the main storyline being 40-year-old man in the club slash I don't have my shit quite together slash I don't want what everybody else wants slash like what the hell am I doing? And the, un the tagline from the musical side could be, you know, I'm moving into learning how to play drums. I don't know where it's going, but this is my passion. So, like, the, the, the co-star was, like, drumming. So Peter right. Pan Syndrome has instrumentals that have drum breaks and right, different right, things right. so when I put the record out it was kind of like what I wanted like half the reviews focused on my return and what I had been through in music and getting disgruntled and coming back and realizing that I wasn't fit for the real world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then half of it was like yo he's a producer but he's like he's playing drums now he's learning some things and that's what Peter Pan was and you know at that point it was like okay 
it was kind of like the book, like it, it was seen as a success and a victory, but what's next? And with the book, I wasn't going to keep writing. I wasn't going to write. So the book ended with the book. The, sure. book. the book was a closure of a chapter. Right. The book was closure and the book was like catharsis. So right. that, that's the end of that. The book, the book basically served as the halftime show for my career. So it's like, this is the dividing line. So, okay, Peter Pan is like, okay, you, you have a profile somewhat. Again, you know, you made a, an album that got good, you know, acclaim and stuff and, and you're playing drums. So like, what's next? And it's like, I started, people started requesting, sampling and requesting the drums that were on Peter Pan. So then I started doing drum break records for nice. the Drum Broker, right. which is a company that does drums by producers. Right, right, right. So I made a drum break album called Lunch Breaks. And people started sampling that. Like well-known producers were like hitting me up, like you know, Laura Finesse or Marco Polo or you know, all these people were like, nice. you know, I want that drum break record you did. And I was like, whoa, okay. So that inspired me to start practicing even more. Like maybe I can be a drummer. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm still a hip hop producer and an artist, but well, maybe it's one thing to do breaks. You know, it's but another it's thing to, to play to, to lead a band and play. Yeah. So I was like, I don't want to just play breaks. I want to be a drummer, like a musician. Like, I want to play. So at that, around that time is when I started hooking up with Pablo, and we would record what were the early stages of the first Do-Rights album. Right. So we that's would, Pablo Martin, right? Pablo Martin. Right. So Do-Rights is the two of you guys, right? The two of us. Right. Pablo mastered all my albums except right. the first one, right. which was never mastered. That's a tidbit. Uh, but all my albums, he was the mastering engineer. He also mastered Sadat X's Black October. Yeah, and, and everybody up. who came through me looking for mastering, I sent him to Pablo. Right, so that's so your he, dude. Right? He was my mastering dude. Right. He's also a musician, and he's in the current version of the Tom Tom Club as oh, a guitar nice. player. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, he, you know, he's a guitar player. He also plays bass. And so, you know, what's the configuration or what's the instrumentation for the Do Rights? Well, the Do Rights is uh, Pablo plays guitar. And um, I play drums, but then we both play bass and we both play keys. Okay. But on we split everything on the first album. This album, I played no bass. He played all the bass. And this album, I played all the keys except for three of the songs. So I do more of the keyboard work. Is there any other like funk duos in the in the annals of history? Like, I don't think so. It's really more like Steely Dan because it's right. like studio. It's studio based because obviously we have to overdub, being right. that there's only two of us, and there's a lot of attention to like detail and making really solid records right. rather than tour, being a touring band. So we're more like a funk Steely Dan, but we play everything. Yeah, because if know. you listen, like the new album, for example. It feels like a full band, and it, there's this kind of running sort of concept where it's like a, you know, at least the intro and stuff. It's, it's like a, a show. It's a fake live album because right. people were like, "Say, hey, what's up? You guys doing any shows?" I'm like, "Well, we have to hire a bunch of musicians sure. to come in and play this stuff, and that costs money, and, and it, it takes time." So, but you do think there's a way that you can emulate this music just as a duo with pedals and looping shit? Like, can you do that? Can you? Like, look at the White Stripes, you know, famous duo. You know, yeah. obviously it's a slightly different genre, but it's just guitar and drums, you mm -hmm. know. It's similar to what you guys do. I'm, I'm curious if you can recreate that full recorded experience in a live version just as a duo. Yeah, can you? It's, it's possible. The, the key, be dope if you could. The keys and the bass is the issue. 
Right. You know, like, right, right. like, like finding a way to loop up the bass and the, and the keys. Yeah, no, that would be a lot. But the know. keys, I feel like, because it's so organ-driven, I think having a really good keyboard player would be a yeah. better move. Right, for sure. To visually, also. For sure. You have somebody that's really getting busy. How would you describe the music, though? Like, it's kind of like fast, up-tempo driving funk shit. It's like meter-style funk yeah, shit. Yeah, but, but we have... So, Pablo and I have... You know other pedigrees like he works in rock and right. punk and pop and Latin and I, I came from hip hop so me I'm more obsessed with the sound of the records because being a oh sonically a, 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 being a producer who used to sample I know what good funk records sound like so like I use you know like I know the vibe and the mojo and the sound a lot of that comes from my background but then he brings a different thing to the table melodically in terms of like the chords and the melodies and the and the way that the instruments are voiced because right. he's got a background as an instrumentalist in, in pop and rock and, and composing and all that stuff. So it, it brings a musicality to it that's not you're not gonna find on like your average like Chitlin Circuit Funk forty five. Like right, you're gonna right, right. find there's like sophistication and there's just nuances that come with, with rock and punk and all that stuff that make their way into the music that wouldn't exist if you're just trying to copy James Brown or copy for sure Motown or Stax or the Meters right, or right. P Funk, you right. know what I'm saying? Right. Like so, it's you know all of our influences coming together, and we're not really you know adherent to one particular era. So it's not like yeah, we're gonna sound like we're in 1967 for a full album, or we're gonna just get right, the right. guitars out and be in '84 right. for the whole album. Like right. we like everything, so you get this whole range of things from the 60s to the 90s and then there's modern stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like I still cut up and scratch like old dialogue off a of spoken word and, so, and, and mix it in. Right. You know, but all the, all the playing is live. You know, so yeah, it's... Yeah, I dig it, man. So it's, it's, it's a way where both of our backgrounds can come together and I feel like it's... I feel like the do-rights is kind of like not so much the Jay's own career but I think everything I've ever stood for musically comes full circle with the do-rights because the J-Zone in the beginning it was about funk and being one with your instrument right, like right. that's there with J-Zone the sound bites and stuff I mean that's there sparingly mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's still there and then you know the tongue-in-cheek humor I mean it's not balls out explicit humor but it's not the, like thug penis yeah it's not like that but, <laughs> there, but, but there are chief chinchilla cameos and there's like tongue-in-cheek so. humor in some of the spoken commentary, a few songs have spoken commentary, and my personality as an artist is there. It's just not as brash, you know what I'm mm -hmm, saying? But mm -hmm, it's there. Mm -hmm. So that that comes into it. And then my attention to detail as a producer also comes in there with the composition and the way the records are done. And the fact that I used to sample so many different kinds of music, now when we make do-rights, like we play so much different kinds of right. music as musicians. I feel like everything I've ever worked for, you know, as a musician kind of comes full circle. As a rap artist, I think Peter Pan and Fish and Grits were like everything mm -hmm. I've stood for. From from being an instrumentalist to sampling to the rapping to the commentary to the the attention to detail, like those two albums I feel represent my entire musical existence as as Jay Zone, and then, but overall, I always wanted to be in a funk band when I was a kid. That's what I imagined. I didn't. I thought it would be eight people, not right. two, but right. can't win them all. So it's like, well, and they, that's not to say that it doesn't have room to it doesn't have room to grow. grow. And I'm in other bands now. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I you play, jam in another band here I, in town, right? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm the drummer for uh, 
a, a band called Benjamin and the Dream Dancers. Okay. And they put, you know, he puts out a lot of stuff. Like he did a record kind of with Daptone, mm -hmm. recent, you know, coal mine related stuff. Mm -hmm. Like he, he does like a lot of soul stuff. And um, he's got a nice following. I mean, he writes some good songs and he put out an album, you know, a few years ago. But then I joined as the show drummer because he played a lot of the drums himself in the studio. So he needed a drummer for uh, a one-month residency at Come On, Everybody. Mm -hmm. And that was a great experience for me because, like I said, I learned how to be... Most drummers learn by playing in a garage, jamming with bands, and then five years in their career, they get put in a studio for the first time and they record. Mm -hmm. Me, I got my start recording drum breaks for people, getting people around sample clearance, making break beats, playing in the studio... And then I eventually evolved into playing live with a band. So right. I had to learn how to drive a band, control dynamics on stage, set the pace, like all these drummer things, you know, from being just not just a breakbeat drummer, but just a general drummer. Sure, sure. So being in that band was just a huge education for me. Yeah, it's still you know, new. It's still like a new. It's still new. For you. Right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. you know, gotcha. but, and then eventually he had me start playing on his studio recordings, Ben. So now mm -hmm. I play drums with them, and then Pablo has a rock band with his wife called Lulu Lewis, and you know we're a five-piece rock band, and I'm the drummer for that. Oh, nice. You I mean, know, so you got a couple I, of gigs. Yeah, so I go play rock and roll, then I go play some soul. Then in the studio, I have do rights and another side project of mine called Zone Identity. Which okay. is more like jazz funk, Dope. and um, and yeah. then I, there was a forty five of that. Yeah, there was yeah, forty five yeah. of that funkitis. So when does the uh, Do Rights album come out? When it's, does it ship? It's out now. It's it, it's the shipping. New joint. It's shipping on Monday. Greasy listening. Okay, cool. But Greasy you can listen. order it now. Right. Pre orders are up, and then uh, the, digitally it comes out Friday, okay. uh, September twenty second, like iTunes and Spotify, Apple Music, and Dope. but the, the the you know it'll be in stores on Friday, so. You know, the Do Rights is out now. I also play jazz uh, locally with this cat named Ray Romaine, who's a Hammond organ player I met through Large Professor. Where's that at? In my neighborhood in Jamaica, Queens. Like, we just. It's like a spot? No, I mean, we just, we've just oh, been getting just together jam? jamming, but we, we're going to probably play in like a local restaurant, you know, right. weekday thing. Because to me, that's more about just getting better as a drummer because like jazz is a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah. So definitely. people who play jazz are kind of born into it. And. It's just a different language. It's a different feel. It's a different set of song. The songbook is different. So, you know, but I want to learn. So, like, to me, just being a better drummer all around, like, I play anywhere I can because I, I made that decision in 2012. Like, if, if this is what I'm going to do, you know, be a composer and a drummer. Like, I also right. write songs and play a little keys. So, like, if this is what I'm going to do, then we got to do it full blast. Like, you know, no, you know, I take gigs, and as long as I can do it, I take it, and then I work locally. You know, jazz is a little intimidating, but I go over there twice a week, and we practice for three, four hours. That's because, dope, man. That's serious uh, discipline. Yeah, because I, I feel like I know in my heart that, you know, going back to the J-Zone thing, like, when I first started drumming, I was like, well, the J-Zone thing is always there. I can always put out an album. Mm -hmm. I can always put out a J-Zone record, and... You know, the fan base, you know, the, the, the niche fan base will be there, you know, and, and it's not saying that I can't do that or that I won't still do that. But, you know, as I get older, like, you know, that it's kind of like it's not really where my heart is at. Sure. You know, I and I so I have to 
I had to look at it like, what if Jay Zone wasn't an option? Like going back to making rap records, like that's not an option. What are you gonna do? And that's my motivation to take on, you know, to jump in the deep end of the pool sometimes. Because right. it's like, because let's be realistic. Like I could always make a rap song and press it up on a forty-five or put it out digitally. Right. But I'm not gonna tour. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna do a show. I mean, I'd rather do jury duty than do a rap song huh. at this point. Well, what about the do rights? Do you think there'll be a time? Yeah, uh, yeah. If, if they, if you they, should. Yeah, man, yeah. I'm telling you. you yeah. Don't, like, don't pass on any more gigs. I'm trying to. I'm trying to help you yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> no, nah, I definitely think we could. You know, we could do that. Yeah, it'd be great to see know? what that would be like live. You know. Yeah. It sounds so. like it would be a great like live type of gig. You know. Yeah. So I mean, I'm using this time playing with the rock band and the soul band as like getting my live thing together. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the rock band, we're going to Vegas next oh, month. So, oh, yeah. you know, I'm getting to travel, you know, travel as a drummer and, you know, sponsored by hip hop site.com. Yeah. I'm playing hip hop site. Wow. That goes way back. No, this is like a cool. I'm sure you sold some CDs. Oh, yeah. oh Pizzo. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, but this is, yeah, now this is a corporate gig. Oh, okay, so good. It's like in good Vegas. You, so, I mean, you know, we, Get to travel and, you know, doing my, my column with Red Bull Music, give the drummer some, like, that's... Yeah, so what's the, if you can, because it'll be easier for you to say it than me to remember in my intro and outro, but, so this is a, it's a it's an audio thing, or is it just, is it a written re- interview? Well, it's, it's, it, it started as phone interviews, and okay. it still is, mm-hmm. but we decided to cut a few episodes in the studio, like how me and you are doing, right. but at the drum kit. Dope. So and, you play a little bit? Yeah, demonstrate and stuff. So uh, so who are some of the cats that you've talked to? Well, in the studio, I, I did Bernard Purdy. Amazing. Uh, Greg Arico from Sly and the Family Stone. Wow. And uh, my boy Leslie Ming, who played, he was with BT Express and Evelyn Champagne King and Kashif. And he actually played the Juicy Fruit beat before it went on the drum machine. Then they took wow. his beat and put it Really? Wow. But he was a studio drummer in the 80s. One of my biggest influences. That oh. guy, great, great dude. And I had those three guys come in. The, the, the radio show's still in production. It's been in production for a long time mm-hmm. because it's just tedious to edit everything. Right. But in the meantime, I've done tons of phone interviews. I mean, I, I, mean, I did uh, George Brown from Cool and the Gang. He was my first interview. Classic. Did yeah. that in person. Mike Clark from Herbie Hancock and Headhunters. Cool, man. I did him. And then over the phone, I did Steve Arrington. Oh, um, great. Greg, yes. Greg Webster, the original Ohio player, was drummer on all the Westbound shit. Dope, man. So, um, yeah, heavy hitters. I, like, yeah, Frank, Frank Waddy, who was, you know, the original JBs with Bootsy and he was in Funkadelic and stuff. I did him. I, I spoke to Robin Russell yesterday, who was the New Birth and Nightlighters drummer. Wow. And he played on Gotta Get a Nut and wow. all those crazy New Birth records. Yeah. You know, uh, Steve Ferrone, who was Average White Band, and then he um, wound up being with Tom Petty, Eric Clapton. I mean, he's a studio, Brian Alger, like, he's a studio guy. Right, right. Steve Arrington, uh, I did uh, David Garibaldi from Tower Power. Oh, dope. Love Tower Power. Yeah, uh, Dwight Burns, who played on Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drells. He was in a group called TSU Tornados. So I got, I got him in there. Um, and you're seeking all these guys out? I'm just finding them. Dope, man. That's you know, what's up. I'm you're just, booking, so you're reaching out, being like, hey, I'm reaching out. Yeah, like I'm finding these guys. Jay, yeah. Are they, well, is anyone already familiar with you? Or like, do you? No, uh, nah, well, but, but Steve Arrington actually came one night when I was uh, up 
Just Blaze birthday and we were up right. there DJing and rapping and stuff and he was there and it was just cool for him to see us in that element. Absolutely. Steve but, is up on contemporary. Steve is up on Steve stuff. Steve keeps himself up on modern music right. and stuff and he's up on the do rights. I sent him so, stuff, I played him stuff. I mean Steve, you know, from Slave, I told you Slave was the group for me. Yeah, man. So so to meet Steve and interview Steve and talk drums, it, it was just like I mean, it was like my life is coming full circle. Like 30 years later, you know, I, I, this guy is like kind of like a peer, you know. Yeah, it, for sure. That, that was what I dreamt about when I was a kid, you know. And, and it, it just, it comes full circle like that. It's like, wow, you know. So, that, you know, interviewing all these guys is just like I'm able to get tips for my career and, you know, for what I'm trying to do as, mm-hmm. as a drummer, like I'm still learning. So I need all the info I can get. And those guys have been great in just giving that, me. It's on Red Bull Music Academy? Red Bull Music Academy Daily, yeah. Oh, dope. If you just put Jay Zone Red Bull or Jay Zone Give the Drummer Some, it'll pop up. Oh, Give the Drummer Some is the name and, of the thing. Yeah, yeah, and there's tons of interviews up there, man. Dope. I don't, and, you know, so, and just to hear their stories. And then, you know, a lot of them never got paid for the samples, obviously. So then it, it, it put things it put things in perspective. You know what I'm yeah, saying? I mean, well, you've seen both sides of the I've fence. I've seen both sides. I've been a sampling producer and I've I've been sampled. People sampled right, my right, drums. Right. And then I talked to guys who got sampled and were paid, and I talked to guys who got sampled and never got a dime. Right. And it just it gives me just a well rounded musical experience. I'm able to talk to, you know, the Boom bap generation X guys about crate digging, but then I can also talk to the original original musicians who have been sampled about how it feels, right. you know. And then I can I can just talk to anybody, you know what I'm saying? Like I can have a discussion about music, whether we're talking hip hop or something else. And I, I I don't I always saw myself as somebody who's I love hip hop and it's part of who I am, but I never wanted to be defined solely by being a rapper. Like I sure that used to make me like the rapper Jays don't like. That's one, the, zone. that's one of the things I did, but I'm not, that's, I mean, that's not, you know, what I want to be remembered for. I mean, I, that's part of my, what I've done, and I want to be remembered for the records I did, but I also, you know, just, I'm a funny guy, but I take my music seriously, and I, I you know, Definitely. I just kind of want to be able to just visit everything that I wanted. You know, whether, you know, what I wanted when I was eight, what I wanted when I was 12. My goal was like to do it. I wanted to see what it was like to rap on a stage. I did it. I wanted to see what it was like to produce, work with my idols in hip hop. I did mm-hmm. it. I wanted to see what it was like to go on a tour. I did it. I wanted to see what it was like to play drums and be in a funk band and make funk records and somebody sample me for a change. I mean, I've, I've you know, I got to experience it. So like now I, feel, I, I kind of feel like I'm still learning, but I've also kind of reached a full circle point where... Everything I wanted to achieve, I achieved. So now it's like, okay, what have, have I never even thought about that might be cool to try to achieve? So, of course, some of that is making some money. I have to eventually take care of. Yeah. But, but that's the thing, too. When you choose to be an artist, man, I'm, sure, an artist I'm sure some of those funk drummers can tell you that, they, too. Yeah, it's, not, it, it, none it, of those guys are super rich. It, 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 you know, like, if, if you're in this to make money, then go do something else. I mean, we all, we all want to survive. Like, I have my, my residency gigs that... You know, are consistent. Yeah, yeah that, that kind help, of that, that help me stuff. Help me pay my bills. And right, stuff. right, right. But I'm not gonna get rich. And my goal was never to get rich. You know, that was right. that was never my goal to get rich. It would be great to get rich, but that's not what gets me out of bed every day. Right. Like, you know, if I wanted to be rich, I wouldn't have. 
in 2012, I wouldn't have been playing drum six hours a day. I would have gone and gotten some kind of trade and, right. you know, or, or figured out a way to get a startup going to like go right to the top. You know what I'm saying? Right. So it's like a lot of these guys have seen their ups and downs financially. And eventually you kind of accept that if you're going to be a musician, this is part of the journey. It's it, this feast of famine living. It, it's difficult to have a, you know, to have a family if you're going to do this. And yeah. relationships yeah. can be a strain because yeah. if you're dating somebody who's just nine to five and they don't know any other way, like that's, that could be a problem. So, like, you, you know, to, to do music and really make it your calling and really dive headfirst into it, you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices, you know, for sure to, to, to do it. And I made those sacrifices. So now it's like, well, how can I just get the most enjoyment out of this? And how can I, you know, maybe inspire somebody else and just learn, just be a sponge and pick up everything I can, I can from it. Yeah, know? for sure. Well, I dig it, man. And I mean, uh, you know, you're as prolific as you ever were. I mean, you might not be doing uh, rap records, but between the two Do Right albums, and then you got like three other four bands that you're just kind of, you know, building up your skill set with. And I think it's great. I think it's an amazing new chapter. That's that's kind of why I wanted to use the book sort of as a way to start the conversation because it's a it's like a part of your past. But I mean, you've already like as far as a musician and an artist, you're you know evolving still and like it takes nuts to fucking pick up a new instrument like in your 30s and dedicate time to it and shit you know what i'm saying yeah. like so i think it's cool man uh, i think uh, i'm proud of you dude for doing this shit and um yeah i think everybody should buy that buy that album yeah man you know greasy listening man <laughs> don't, tell, don't tell your doctor you were here <laughs> thanks yeah. again man i appreciate your time no man. doubt man All right, thank cool. you Shouts to J-Zone. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm going to play one more song off that Greasy Listening album that just came out. So make sure you cop that. Uh, go to his Bandcamp, or you can stream it on Spotify or wherever you listen to music. Just support the dude. He's a hard-working cat that puts a lot of time and dedication into his music, too, which is, uh, you know, I've always respected that about him. So, thank you guys again for tuning in. This is the Houseless Podcast. My name is Peter Agassi. I'm the host and the producer of the show. Every episode is edited and engineered by CJ Stewart. Uh, much shout-outs to him, and thanks for all of his hard work. And, yeah, just love one another, y'all. Be safe, take care, and I will catch up with you guys when I get back from Budapest. All right, peace, y'all. <laughs> all right, man, loosen right, up a little bit right here. Right. Do right, slaying back in the cut. I like that. My name is Pippin Polyester Pete. We gonna get into something right here that we call a ballad for a fallen country. Talk to me. Tighten up a bit.